This is No Training Wheels, and I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Who is Steve Cullen? If you've been around the USA crit circuit in the last couple of years, or frankly, if you've been to almost any high-level criterium in the United States, you've probably run across him. His goal is to make criterium racing the preeminent style of racing in the United States, and it's a goal that he is highly passionate about which is why he caught my attention and why I wanted to sit down and talk to him. In this episode, we look at the intersections of bike racing and of the world around him that he finds so fascinating. Those intersections in between high performance, nutrition, and brand building. A quick programming note before we dive into the first chapter. When General Patton was asked about the language that he would choose to use when talking to his soldiers, he reportedly said, well, when I want it to stick, I give it to him dirty and I give it to him loud. Steve has really bought into that approach. And so some of the language that he uses in this interview is is adult. We've kept this episode unbleeped because frankly, there was no way to keep the meaning behind his sentences and behind his message without those words. So if you are around young children or somebody who might find this language offensive, maybe it's a good idea for you to listen to an episode of the Slow Ride podcast instead. I heard one of their recent episodes featured their predictions for 2029 and what the cycling world will be like at that time. In today's episode, Steve Cullen, Cleaner, Faster, Better, we break it into three chapters. And each chapter roughly focuses on those intersections that Steve finds to be the most fascinating. In chapter one, Cleaner, we focus on Steve's obsession with nutrition and how that obsession with nutrition has driven his team to focus on the all-natural athlete and what he believes that means for the future of the sport. My name is Stephen M. Cullen, and I am the founder and performance director for the Butcher Box Pro Cycling Program. And if you look at a lot of the cycling organizations throughout the country, even some some of the ones who are really at the top of the sport, the the approach to management, the Steve Cullens of all these other different teams, sometimes it seems that uh, the approach to management trails the team's performance so that the the management's kind of an afterthought. But when you approach ButcherBox, it looks like management came first. There was an idea, there was a action plan, there was some creation, and then the team came into existence. Interesting. The thing that you raised right there is there's two two separate things of it. The first thing that you kind of mentioned there was that I think many cycling programs start from a cycling-based perspective where they kind of say, I like racing bikes and this is how bike racing teams get done. And then a person either transitions away from racing themselves and then starts that foundation and they work with inside the system by the track that the system already has there. And they're just saying, I'm going to do my version of that. This is normal across a lot of sports. And I think, you know, cycling specifically has a very permeable or plastic barrier between amateur, semi-professional, professional, super elite. I think it's lent itself, specifically in the U.S., to a lot of people starting programs from clubs and so on and so forth. 
which makes it really, really exciting. You can dive in and start one of these. For me, when I decided to get into the team game, I've had a lifelong obsession with high-performance programs from my own athletic background and then specifically and especially in my business and professional development. I've really been obsessed with high-performance teams and high-performance brands and looked to start a program that allowed me to merge a lot of the things I was interested in in my life, fusing creativity, high-performance athleticism, storytelling, all into one place outside the confines of what I would find in the commercial market with my professional life. I absolutely started the, the whole program under the simple formulas that you use in any entrepreneurial endeavor, which is everything's got to start from a vision. Everything is a brand. Brand is just a way that we talk about the collection of things that make something what it is and differentiates it, makes it singular. I, I think of things in five-year terms, like, okay, what's the ultimate vision of what's it going to be? And then what are the likely steps to get there, right? So an Olympic dream, building a church, building a home, building a family, what are we trying to get at it from a personal investment level, from like a spiritual personal investment level? Like, why do we do it? And then from there, you kind of ladder everything towards that why, and then you just take the first step, next step. And it gets pretty calculated from there. But essentially, yeah, you have to have this foundational vision of what it is. And then what are the steps that are going to get there? For me, it was very much I wanted this to be a venue for high-performance thinking and for high-performance athletes to do their best. And so, so, yeah, so it definitely started idea first, and then everything else follows from that, from that particular idea. A lot of us say we want to be on a team. We want to be on a great team. We want to be on a team that succeeds, whether it's locally, whether it's regionally, nationally. For better or worse, we're like, we can't find that where we are, so we're going to build it ourselves. Right. Yeah. For people who come into it with the idea that they're going to build it for themselves, how hard is it? I mean, you've committed time, resources, money, passion, skin in some situations. How hard is it to actually fulfill the vision that you set forward for yourself? Scope and scale dictate everything. If you want to bake a cake, cool. Do you want to bake a cake for the king and queen? That's another thing. Do you want to have a cake of cake baking company or do you just want to do it as a serious enthusiast or do you want to do it as a national empire right like scope and scale dictate how fucking brutal it's going to be if you just want to have like a party cyclocross single speed team that's not that hard but i would still argue that the principles are all the same you have to start with why are you doing it you asked how hard it was the answer is it will take absolutely fucking everything you will have to catastrophically restructure your entire life if you want to do it at a high level. I've had to rebuild how my career functions. I've had to rebuild literally how my office works in order to accommodate this. So I work 100% remotely now. I have technology and human beings that help me do that. I have reinvented the work process of how my office behaves in order to allow me to operate from the road. And then everything centralizes on how you communicate that out. I mean, leadership is 100% communication. So you spend an enormous percent of time organizing the next steps of what you have to do, communicating that first to your internal team, then to your athletes, then to your clients, and so on and so forth. So you spend a radical amount of time thinking about what needs to be done, thinking about who needs to do that stuff, and then laying out the steps for them to involve themselves in doing that. The, most the single most complicated thing, and I work with Canada de Goose, Land Rover, Fox Racing, 
uh, K&N Sports. I work with like powerhouse global brands. The single most complicated thing that I do every day is work with this team. And it takes so when you when you hire when you go to a company which does require vision and plan and steps, people come into that thing at a professional level, and then I can pick and choose to hire people at various levels of experience. There's a certain tacit business agreement that you all make to do things at a certain level, and there's a way that it functions, and you basically have paychecks and not paychecks. At the level that my program is at right now, we're in a transitioning phase, and I don't exactly know. 100% with the next very phase of it is, but that there's various levels of ages, experience levels, and life commitments going on at any one time. It's much closer to college sports than it is professional sports. So I have 19, 20, 25 year olds that are kind of figuring out how to be adults in life. Then you have adults with full time jobs. And our leadership team, so between Dino, Steven, and myself, this is all, we make zero dollars off of this team, zero fucking dollars. I make no money. In fact, I put in tens of thousands of dollars every year into the program myself, despite our budget, despite our budget, I put that in. There, it's a complex mix of multiple skills between brand building, performance building, logistics, operations, and then finance of the organization itself, which is the addictive portion of it. So you're teaching people various skills about how to operate the company. Then you're teaching people various skills about how to build a brand. Then you're teaching athletes how to be adults, how to be humans, how to function. Then you're teaching the team how to operate like a team. Then you're also teaching the athletes how to be contemporary athletes and not shitbag old school athletes. So they have to understand social media, brand building, messaging, platforming, what an ambassador is. So there's a complex mix of things that you have to educate, structure, and sequence out with a very finite level of time that you can execute to that, all based on literally life energy allowed per day, per unit. All of those things going on at literally maximum fucking velocity, seven days a week. Where does this passion that you have come from? Because you would have lost almost everybody else in the world when you said, I have to invest tens of thousands of my own dollars. You would have lost the other percent of the world when they learn that you get up at 5.30 in the morning and you work pretty much nonstop at functioning all these different entities. Where does this passion come from for Steve Cullen? I have like a life quest to break normal. Like I just want to smash normal to fucking pieces. I have no interest in the middle, the fat, blobby, gray mediocrity of things in the middle. And so I'm super drawn to the extremes of human experience and to the growth path that it takes for people to get to their personal limits, whatever that is, whatever level that is, that fringe is where it's super interesting. I also think where those fringes overlap, those intersections are what make it so interesting when it's athlete artist, when it's brand performance, when it's entrepreneur leader. When it's all of these mixed things, those intersections in life are where it's most exciting. So if you get these intersections at the edge between fashion and sport and high performance and technology, that's where life is most interesting. It requires you to be fucking pretty dialed and pretty committed, and you have to pour your guts into it. And I understand that there's a whole set of humanity that the ultimate pursuit for a lot of humanity is stability, right? Like they're given chaos or they're given problems or they have a disease to overcome, or poverty, or civil war, or something. For a lot of people, the pursuit of stability is the ultimate life goal. I've been fortunate to be born into a situation and a condition in a country where I can create my own chaos and invent better problems than the ones I was born with. 
And so the problems that I'm most interested in dedicating my life to solving is how do we unlock our highest performance? How do we inspire others? How do we infuse everything with creativity? How do we transform innovation, not into a thing that I apply, but into a way that I live? I have a ferocious nonstop appetite for reinvention, chaos causing and problem making. And I think troublemakers are the most important thing that we have in society. And I endeavor to spend my entire life to, be, to cause high quality problems. And I really, really am looking to do that often. And so the team gives me a, believe it or not, a fairly low stakes way to exercise and to practice things that I can't in my business life or in my personal life. This is going to be the segue of all segues. You're talking about appetites. On your website, you encourage, on the ButcherBox website, you yeah, encourage yeah. everyone to join you for a ride and a burger anytime. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about the commitment that this team has to the all-natural athlete. That was a hell of a segue. Um, so <laughs> you're like, you said the word food. Well, I do have a personal obsession with, uh, with food, I think, for, for a lot of reasons that are different podcasts. But as a personal paradigm, I believe that we're in the era of the all-natural athlete, where the fusion between high performance and wellness as global paradigms fusing together and becoming a major marketplace, right? That's obvious. That's obvious for any asshole looking at me. So I really, if I wanted to have a team that was going to be culturally relevant, if I was going to have a program, a program that was culturally relevant, it should participate in a global paradigm intersection, right? Where there's multiple intersections creating a white space for you to occupy. I think that if you look at human high performance, there's the triangle of endeavor, right? There's, you have to sleep well, you have to eat well, and you have to execute well. And there's the emotional circle that pulls off. There's the emotional circle aspect that pulls all those things together. So when I was growing this team and building this team, one of the things that, you know, my partners, Dino and Steven and I talked about is we always eventually, eventually we have to bring in more resources and more horsepower to be able to attract better athletes, to provide for them, all these things, right? You just need greater resources to achieve more things. You want to maximize what you have, but you need more resources. So I wanted food to be a big portion of this. You know, I wanted nutrition to be a big portion. The human body is 100% made out of food. No bullshit. That's it. Put that in your fucking brain and stick with it. Literally, your body is made out of food. 100%. The end. So do you think that has something serious to do with your performance? Yes or no, right? So I think you basically, if you sleep, eat, and then ride your bike, those are the things that make you perform well. I also think that food is catastrophically destroyed on a global level through corruption, through famine, through all that stuff. But on what we can fix at a micro level, on a macro level, it's got problems. On a micro level, what can we fix is how we source, how we eat, and therefore how we source food. The reason why high performance is so interesting, whether it's bike racing, criterium racing specifically, high performance athletes are interesting because they're at the physical, mental, and emotional limits of human ability. And therefore their demands on sleep, nutrition, performance, wellness, and care, psychological self-care, intellectual care, spiritual care, they all perform under a warrior context, which is maximizing all of these things. They also need to approach food in that way, at an extreme way. And it has to be extremely delicious and extremely powerful and extremely nutritious and extremely well-timed and extremely dosed. And to do all those things, you have to have an extreme way of viewing how you source it. When we looked at high performance and we wanted to move it from the club level to the elite level to the professional level, as we continue to move along this five-year vision, we knew that the next partnership that we wanted to have was going to be significant around one of these major human paradigms. I so, ha so happened to have, through my professional connections, a really positive relationship with one of our clients. 
um, a visionary in the food wellness movement, uh, Mike Salguero, who's revolutionized the way that we source what I consider to be the most broken part of the global food chain, which is our relationship with animals. Uh, I personally, I have no problems with vegans, no problems with vegetarianism, and especially no arg arguments against their moral objections to eating other things. Absolutely not. Absolutely, I understand that. And at various times in my life, I've been both vegan and vegetarian for those same reasons. But I believe that human beings, uh, you know, should benefit from their omnivorous heritage. And meat, meat is a fantastic way to provide phytonutrients, all the things that we need in protein. Animals eat the things and then we eat the animals. That's how lions work. That's how it works, right? I think the problem with it is that we were doing a shit job of sourcing that nutritional, that nutritional quality. And so when I looked at the intersections, again, I'm obsessed with the intersections at the edge of culture. When I looked at those intersections, I said, athletic nutrition has turned into pills and powders and that's killing us. It's rotting our guts, killing our teeth and making us asshole performers. That's not the fucking answer. We have to return to nature and get back to eating on a wellness level. Nothing is faster than healthy. Nothing is faster than healthy. We need to be healthy first and well first. And then we need to push that to its natural limits to perform well. And then supplement only in extreme circumstances at the very end when there's no natural way to do that and we're doing an abnormal thing. So it's abnormal to have your heart rate at 195 beats a minute and take in calories. So because that supersedes natural requirements, it makes sense that science would step in and invent the gel to fill that. But everything else should be done naturally and can be done naturally. And so the partnership that I have with Mike Silguero, here's the concept I think, Mike, is the rise of the all-natural athlete. Do you believe that you have a role in that? And I think that as you take over the family table, what about also owning the training table? And let's pick the extremes of the training table. So I want, let's start with crit racing as the ultimate example of power, endurance, skill, danger, right? It brings in everything that all sports require into crits. Crits are the ultimate fucking expression of sport. That's it. Fucking period. Crit racing is all of it. <laughs> it requires you to be an incredible manipulator of technology and machines, requires you to have maximum endurance, requires you to have maximum power, requires you to make split-second decisions, requires you to be tactically astute, individually powered, all of these things. And it's a team sport where it's 6v6v6. It is the highest expression of sport, in my opinion. Everything else is a different thing. So if you use that as an extreme crucible, and say, how can we fix the broken food chain with our athletes? How can we fix specifically protein? Do you think that's a viable model to go out there and prove its validity, prove that this is a different thing? And so he was like, okay, I'm buying it. And he's like, I buy in, that's cool. And he's a real morally driven person as well. So he also is motivated on the same personal level that I am, which is, you know, I want to dedicate my life to changing other people's lives. And he's the same way. He wants to build a legacy brand, a legacy company on his end. And he says, okay, let's get together on a moral level and say, let's go out and change these kids' lives and help them be their absolute best and do that. Then let's also see if we can have a cultural impact and say, can we change the way that people think about food? Can we change the way that they think about eating? And so that was our partnership on that. And so can something as simple as a well-sourced hamburger change the world? Fuck yes. Absolutely. A hamburger can change the fucking world. I can take you on a bike ride and cook you a meal afterwards that will change your fucking life permanently. Absolutely. He believes in that. I believe in that. 
And then my partners, Dino and Steve and I all believe in that. And so we started to build this program with this deep understanding of that's the central mission of this particular team. So let's talk about partnering because Dino was interviewed on a a video program out of Boston. And he said something, and I'm going to paraphrase, but going and finding money is easy. Finding the right partner is harder. And I think he, in that instance, he was talking about ButcherBox and the partnership that you guys have with ButcherBox. But I want to change it and move a little bit away from ButcherBox, but focusing on nutrition, the partnership that you have with Kristen Arnold, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, somebody who has spent her educational life focusing on on making performance athletes better. Absolutely. Why was it so critical to you to go out and find somebody who could carry forward this message in a scientific way to your athletes? Kristen is part of a new wave of scientists and researchers that are focused on high performance, uh, human high performance, right? So, and Kristen Arnold is part of a wave, a small number of very progressively minded human beings that are trying to take back what science has taken away from sports nutrition. Kristen's part of a way of saying, no, it's Eastern and Western, it's future and past, it's legacy and innovation. So it was really important for me to get her on board as a critical component to our team is to get somebody that can help guide the team on how it was performing on its own. Are we eating well? Like, like, like I said, I, like, absolutely. Your body's made out of food and, and your body is what performs. And it is, it is all of those things. So I want my athletes to be at the highest performing level possible. What is the number one thing I can do is if I want to fix the way they eat, improve the way they eat, help them show up to races, optimize, keep them injury resistant, illness resistant, keep them, their, their biome functioning perfectly. Kristen was essential to that. I think she got a fucking grip of acronyms after her name and that's only going to continue on. Right. So she understands the sport. She races, she's, you know, she races for my women's protein. Um, she's a central component in how that thing runs. And she's also my confidant and advisor when it comes to nutrition and performance. She understands the watts. She understands the dinner plate. She understands the lifestyle. She and I are currently writing a cookbook that we're going to be producing in 2020. And we're there to really start to codify this. We're not alone in this. This is part of a larger movement. This is just our slice of it. So we have exclusive briefings as part of our team. Every six to eight weeks, there's a 60 to 90 minute session where we talk about food and wellness. Um, Then she also has written out a full agenda of programming for our fans and followers, where we're going to be releasing that on a monthly basis on a newsletter and through our Instagram and social and podcasts. For everybody that's bought into this, they are less sick, healthier, more vital, and they are 10 to 15% better. And I heard it happen at the dinner table as I had one of my, one of my guys who I'm not going to call out here, but one of my guys was like just fatigued and starting to eat sloppy. And he was saying something and I had, and he said something like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like pack a salad and my whole dinner table, all my guys said, yes, cook your steak, chop it up, put it in a Ziploc bag, get your salad ingredients, put them together, do that. Make the homemade smoothie with all natural fruits, do that. My team leapt forward in on that guy and said, yes, you want to know why? It's because they look at that and said, if you're eating like an asshole, you're not going to be at your best and you're going to fuck us in a race.
We've arrived at chapter two of today's episode. Chapter two, faster. It is undeniable that the 2019 ButcherBox Professional Cycling men's team was a fast group of men. Absolute slayers. John, Spencer, Connor, Alex, the whole crew. They were the 2019 men's USA Crits team champions. And they won it in emphatic style on the last day at Westchester after giving up a whole slew of points in what can only be described as a catastrophe that was Salt Lake City. In 2020, the ButcherBox team will be trying to repeat as men's champions, but they're adding an additional layer to it. They want to be the first squad to win both the men's and women's championship. And they've got a stacked roster to prove it on both sides. So let's yeah. talk about your team. This is front-loaded. 2019 USA Crits team champions in the men's competition. A huge accomplishment coming from a team that two years ago didn't exist. Was that the goal? Was that the goal of the organization? We are winning this team competition in 2019. Yeah. From an athlete standpoint, there's two levels to that. There's the athletes and there's also for the organization. For the organization, I think the team competition is probably is one of the most important things that the organization could try to achieve. So we established it as a goal. And here's why. You have to prove logistical consistency to win that. And that is a major fucking operational undertaking. To say you're going to win a race means you have to get that race right. To say you're going to win 50 races a year, which we almost did last year, yes. To say you're going to win 50 races in a year, you might take 100 shots at that, right? So there's a lot that goes into that. But to win the series requires that you consistently perform over an eight-month period, that you get people and equipment from locations all over the country into a spot to do a thing repeatedly over and over again. So the team competition requires a very complex set of strategic choices every single race, as well as a never-ending, compoundingly complex set of logistical considerations. Only a team can win the team competition. An individual can win the overall. You know, an individual can do a lot of things. Now, I'm not saying it's not a team sport and it doesn't require a team to win races. I'm not saying that, clearly. Especially, and if we want to talk about it, what I think is happening in 2020 is going to radically transform crit racing in America. Oh, we're, we're going down this direction, for sure, because I want to know why why we as a sport can't get around or get above or beyond this concept of team. Every bike racer knows that on the roadside, teams are what matters. In, in cyclocross, as Colin Reuter said on this program, your teammates are just other people you have to beat. In road racing, and especially in crit racing, your teammates are the things that you need to help you get to the point where you're going to win. Yeah, Justin and Corey Williams would not yeah. win any races if it wasn't for the other guys who are on that team who are... Who Bold are statement, but yes, I get your point. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I think Justin... <laughs> I love it. Hang probably, it up. <laughs> could probably win a lot by themselves. But, you know, like... Yeah. 
you look at you look at this concept, but but do we know the names of the other guys? Yes, I do because I happen to follow all of them on social media. But right. if you look at a casual fan, they'll be like, no, it was Chris Froome who won the Tour de France. It wasn't Chris Froome yeah. who won the Tour de France. It was Team Scott. Yeah. You know, but but we name the individual. Yeah. Why are we so individual focused? in a team sport why can it not be the name on the front of the jersey as opposed to the name on the back as a sports society we are cool with teams right you're a new england patriots fan or you're a seattle sounders fan i think we get that right i think human beings desire to identify with other human beings is only natural whether it's a religion or a, a political leader or a family leader or something right we cast everything in human stories i mean the most the thing that we crave most in life is a human story we crave it more than food we crave it more than sex. We crave it more than sleep. We want a story more than anything. We, by, by evidence that we stay up late for our favorite stories, that we watch our movies hungry, all these things. We want a story. But I think the appetite for teams in sports following is absolutely there. And people identify that. And they know it's our team versus their team. In fact, we like it that way. We're hardwired that way. Our tribe versus your tribe. Our warriors versus your warriors. So, so we're, we're wired to that and we like that. And sports is just a proxy for all those things. So it's natural that Chris Froome wins and Enos, but people know Sky, people know Quickstep, people know Map A, people know Saturn, people know UHC. You know, so I challenge you on that. I don't agree. And I hope one day I aspire that people say butcher box synonymous with high performance or operation. I think the challenge is on the consistency of those teams and the fact that many teams don't have a vision, they aren't brands, they're just groups. And so if you have a brand, then people can understand it and they can understand what that is and they can follow that. The Patriots are a team, but bigger than that, they're a brand. They will, you know, when Tom Brady comes and goes, they'll still be the Patriots. And I'm hoping, you know, I think the challenge that we have in ours and in our sport of cycling is that so many, they come together without a vision or purpose or reason. And so, yeah, no one knows what the fuck it is. So it's just a person that wins a race. So they often say, oh, Sarah won that race. And they don't talk about our team, probably because their team doesn't fucking make any sense. But when Ty Magner wins it, he represents Rally and everything that Rally stands for. And he's a representative of that. And when Justin and Corey or other, other riders, when Justin or Corey win a bike race, we know it's part of Legion. I don't exactly know 100% what Legion stands for right now, but I get a sense of it, right? And at, over time, I'm sure they're going to articulate their vision. So that's all a fault of inadequate brand building, which is part of what you and I talk about at the top of your podcast is why, what's the founding elements, you know? And when people, when people are motivated by something, just like they treat, they treat corporations and teams just like they do people. I think you're interesting. So I, I rattle it a bit to see if any bolts fall off. And then I scratch under the paint on the top and see what's underneath. And then I open up the cupboard door and see what's inside. People look at brands like they look at fancy sports cars. Okay, it looks fast from the outside, but, but what's it like? And then they walk over and they lean into the window and they say, oh, the interior looks pretty good. And then they sit in the driver's seat and they say, oh, fuck yeah, this feels good. And then, they, and then if they're really hardcore, they pop open the hood and then look at the engine. Well, that's how we treat other people, right? The more I'm interested, the deeper I look. And the more that I'm interested in your team, I keep looking. Well, why the problem with the sport and cycling is that when you look after the fancy sports car and you look in the interior and it's shit, and then you look under the engine, and it's just one person. There's nothing there. That's why people are obsessed with, with high-performance teams, and that's why we follow. When you look at the Patriots, there's 
books and stuff that you can follow. And each one of their athletes is their own entity. And it's interesting. And I can reach into it. And I like their flaws and their strengths. I can identify with that. Let's look at the engine. Let's look inside this, this butcher box car. These are some incredible athletes. Individually, they could accomplish a lot, but they came yeah. together this year to accomplish a unified goal. Accomplishing that goal, do you think they had to sacrifice their own individual accomplishments? It's interesting. This is a great, this is a great question. So there's, there's two things. So I will answer that, but there's, there's two sets to that. So, so one set is saying like that's functioning under the paradigm that your individual goal and your collective goal are not of equal value. And that's a scarcity belief. And I, I choose to not live by a scarcity belief. And I encourage everybody to choose an abundance belief that your individual identity and team identity, you can have both. And so I choose to reject a scarcity view of life in the world at all times, that it's not an or question, individual or team. It's an and question, individual and team. Stop saying or stop fucking cut it out. Get rid of or in your life. Get rid of or just say and. Take everything you're debating in your life, throw out the world or, and say and. So if you start with an and proposition and then solve from there, life gets way more fucking interesting. There's a couple things that are special about my boys and why I did not hire new guys this year. One, they all were seeking something. When they came to this team, they were burnt out on the individual glory path and the fact that it was sacrifice everything for one other person, not for a higher cause. So they were chewed up and spit out by programs with no vision or, and I'm not, I can't speak categorically, you know, but like by programs that were just about winning some race or doing some sort of thing or racing for some other person, or they had chased individual glory for a long time and had been, had success, but to what means? There was, wasn't a path. Yeah, I won stuff, but now what? So, so they came beat up, tired, fucked over a lot, right? or just not sure what to do with their success. In the entrepreneurial world, we, we talk about turn over the next card. What's the next card you're gonna play? These kids ran out of cards. So they came looking for, what do I do next? And I said, well, here's a program that has a five-year vision and I wanna try to do these things. And these things are unique and interesting and unusual. Do you wanna try to do that? And do the things that you thought you wanted. So if you ask them, why did you wanna win a race? It's I want, what you really are asking is like, how do I wanna validate the sacrifices I've made in my life? How do I want to contribute to something greater to myself? How do I want to validate my masculinity, my courage, my integrity? Who am I? What am I doing? Why does what I do matter, right? So if you're addressing it at that issue, then everything else starts to build it up, up from that level. So those guys win and they win a lot. I mean, I think they can win a lot more. You know, and I think if you want to be super critical, we fucked up a whole bunch of shit that we should have done better. And I hold myself personally accountable for all of that, 100%. What about the difference between the way that you guys performed at Salt Lake and the way that you guys performed at Westchester? I mean, Westchester, it was all on the line. There were several different parts of the competition that you guys wanted to execute and win. You won the team competition that night. And Connor ended up getting second in the individual competition. Was there something that happened in between those two races? Because it was definitely on the polar ends of the dichotomy of the successes and failures that you guys had last year. Yeah, well said. Well, if you look at that thing specifically, Salt Lake, there was a technical problem during that race that's part of crit racing that, I, who knows, but there was a switch in the changes of lead out. And uh, one of the teams, one of the teams blew their switch and and took out our whole team. 
and they know it and we know it. And that's part of the thing that maybe we could have defended against better. So we, we put five guys on the deck and that was catastrophic. And the story of the year is we went from being charge of the team competition to giving back basically two races worth of points. And then that caused physical damage, equipment damage that took weeks and weeks and weeks to come back with. We weren't full power until benchmark. Specifically, when Steve Ramirez and I built the team and looked for the recruiting, we targeted races we knew we could have the most effect. Benchmark and Westchester was one of our target races. Our team is literally built for races like that. And the way that we race shines best on courses like that. There's reasons for that. Why we think in the national landscape, that's where the white space was for our team. And so we built the team to occupy that white space. Westchester had some very specific things. There was very okay corral. Cliff Bar had very specific things that they had to do, right? They had to keep us at a certain level and finish in a basic way. 6v6, inside, shut the gate, lock the gate, throw the key away. It's only going to go so many ways. And that's what made it so exciting. And we had to go out and do what we do best, with it, which is smash mouth bike racing. But we had to suck up points on the road that they couldn't stack enough points ahead of time to make the finish impossible. Statistically, it's very difficult to put more than 120-something points on a team per race. Typically, most races are within 50 to 60 points between teams. So 120 points becomes an ass-kicking. To give you a fact, we gave up over 300 points by losing our team in Salt Lake. So from Salt Lake to the end, we had to make up, sorry, we gave back 280 points. So we basically had two full ass-kicking races within three races. You know what I mean? So if you look at the statistics, you're like, oh, that's what it's going to take to move back. And by the time we got there, we were 120-something points down with one race to go. There's only one way that that's got to go. So all Cliff Bar do, had to do is they could win that race effectively out on the road. So if they put 50 points into us on the road, it would have been almost impossible for us to beat them at the line. So not only did we have to neutralize the points they took on the road, but at best take those things back. Now, I knew my boys were in maximum fitness, maximum motivation on a targeted course. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was all green light offense, do or fucking die, do or die moment. So we went all out to suck up lap points and sprint points to bring that back down. So we'd go into the finish line neutral. We frankly said it was likely to take back half on the road is what we wanted to do and then outrace them to the finish. That would bring back the championship. While doing that, we wanted to tire out their sprinters because we knew that they had, Owen was sprinting on fire. He proved it at Littleton. He's very, very fast. And he proved it at Boise. And they had Joe Lewis and Zach Allison. So we knew we had, we had to beat up Zach, who's my personal friend and I got mad respect on. But we had to beat up Zach. We had to tire out Joe. And we wanted to really tire out a young rider like Owen. And he just doesn't have the years in his legs to really do it. So we wanted to fatigue him. So by being hyper-aggressive, taking points on the road, burning their engines up during the race to keep them defensive and then going aggressively all out for mid-race points, we were banking on the fact that we would have more left in the tank. And, and lo and behold, we beat up the race enough. And then finally, Alex got away towards the end to get those points. And then we put together the best lead out we could with table scraps left to stuff the box and did it, right? So it was a great scenario. And Cliff Barr made it a, made it a gutsy, valent race for us. Enough about men. Yes. 2019, you introduced the beta version of the women's team. Are we going to see 2020, the Butcher Box women's professional team following suit with the men team champion? What Steve Dino and I say is one team, two squads. It's always been one team. We just know the men's game better. 
from a recruiting standpoint. Now we, yes, we will have a full program. We're going to have six pro women, six pro men, plus four elite women on reserve and four elite men on reserve. And we'll have a full staff that we've trimmed our club program and now it's 24 riders. Um, right now, tentatively, you know, I think the vision that I'm very motivated on is to be the first team in USA Pitts history to win both titles in the same game. It is a fucking insane proposition. It's an insane fucking proposition. Um, I'm doing the historic research right now to make sure that that's true, but either way, I don't care. It seems really exciting. I think it's possible to say that we want to win some classic American races. We didn't, especially on the men's side, we didn't win some of the races that we were very close to. I think Athens. We really wanted to win that race and came very close, but didn't quite. And so I think we have unfinished business with a lot of those races on the men's side. I know the boys are ferociously hungry to win some classics. I think on the women's side, we are working extremely hard to recruit women's talent, uh, to put together a highly competitive roster that has the right personalities with the right skill sets to be able to be competitive on every course, every day, year round. The women's talent market is ultra ultra competitive it is i could have been built three men's teams with all the available talent it is so easy to build a winning men's program in 2020 it is so hard to build a powerhouse women's program in 2020 there is more money in women's cycling than ever before but not more talent so you have the same amount of talent with 20 times more options so it is hyper competitive there are women starting regional teams all over the place. There are fixed gear teams, gravel teams. The rise of off-road racing is pulling women's talent out of road into that. Or it's mixing talent where now you have women wanting to race MTV, cyclocross, gravel, and crits, right? So you have these massive, it's so hard to get the talent to come together at the women's level. There are some women that I've signed since then that are, that are true fucking dragon killers. We've arrived at chapter three of today's episode. Chapter three, better. When it comes down to bike racing, we all deserve better. We deserve a better quality of story. A story that can be told about the positivity and about the good things in this sport. And Steve strives to do exactly that, to create a unified story about his team, about the men and women who sacrifice so much for him and so much for the ideals that he and the rest of his leadership have bought into. You've inspired me. First off, I'm completely inspired. Uh, I have a feeling that I that this this pitch has been made before because your practice is so good. I, I want to be better, at, but I don't want to be accused of copying ButcherBox or you or anybody in any way. So you've inspired me to do something for 2020. Okay. If I show up to races, yeah, and USA Crits races in specific, wearing my Stetson fedora 
with an <laughs> ironic t-shirt? Am I going to get accused of copying ButcherBox's style? For one, our t-shirts aren't ironic. Let's be fucking clear. There's nothing ironic about our mustaches or our t-shirts. I think that's pretty funny. I think, no, I think that's just having, I think that that's, that's having fun. And I think, uh, I think that there's some cultural tropes in there. I'm not above, I'm a fan of other programs. I'm a fan of other teams. Um, I'll wear a Legion t-shirt, you know, just not to the races. I want to fucking destroy them at races, but I'm a fan of Justin Williams. I'm a fan of Corey Williams. I'm a fan of Legion, you know, so I'm a fan of people trying to push to be better and elevate the sport and make people better. I'm a fan of that stuff. You know, I'm a fan of LA sweat. I'm a fan of their party style and their, and their, their freedom loving approach to the sport. I'm a fan of them. So I can be a fan of a lot of things. The reason why people, I think, love our boys so passionately or hate our boys so passionately, although there's less of that now, is because I think that they really represent that freedom-loving, wild, howl-at-the-moon lifestyle. They just live without fear. They race without fear. They, they embrace life. You know, they put two fists on it, you know. And my boys grab the steering wheel, drop it into fifth gear, and throw a fucking cast iron plate on the gas pedal and that's how they live and i think you know the cowboy hats and the the cutoff tank tops and the driving fast and the motorcycles and the muscle cars and the truck building that's all one thing man these guys the reason why they love my boys is because we don't get a chance to see the right stuff in its full glory very often in life the righteousness the true righteousness of people unafraid to live full throttle. And that's an addictive and exciting thing. And so, yeah, if you wear a Stetson to a race, that means that you too are a fucking cowboy. You too are a fucking cowboy. If, it, if it's associated with my team, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. But we don't own the idea of fucking freedom. We don't own the idea of bravery. You know, if we happen to symbolize that, I'm so lucky and thankful and proud of that. But yeah, Put on your fucking Stetson and live that way. Go out and do that stuff. Can we, as a sport, allow it to just be, I don't know, sterile results? Or does this sport require personalities and style? Only a lawyer asks questions like that. But uh, <laughs> I am guilty as charged, and that's yeah, a terrible yeah. pun. <laughs> yeah. The answer, the answer to that is it's it has to be a human story and it has to be a personality, right? It has to be. Or else they would just program up a bunch of machines and have them do that, right? Or, or else it's erg testing or else it's erging, you know, and, or it's a dyno, right? There's like in automotive, that's the dyno, right? The dyno is look at how good our engine is, right? Or look how aerodynamic our car is. That's what that is. But racing, racing is about can human beings do all of the things with all of the stakes in a single moment? That's why we watch racing, right? That's why we watch racing is because it's an ever decreasing window of opportunity that apexes at a finish line and all of human drama plays out to that. We sports are a proxy for life. They are a proxy for life. They allow us to do things that we can't do in life. That's why we forgive our politicians and we castigate our sports heroes. Because we have said to them, I give you these fake rules to show me real 
humanity. In real life, you have famine and war and corruption and nepotism and misogyny and racism and all these other horrible fucking things that never make it a fair fucking fight. But in sports, we say, I give you humans a true fair fucking fight. Don't you screw this the fuck up for me. You better show me how fucking good humans really can be. So yes, it has to be personality. We watch it to see them. Why do my boys, why do people love my boys and I hope love my girls the same way? Why do they follow my women, follow these women, right? Is because I hope that they see something in themselves of a better way to live life or a different way to live life or an encouragement to do those things, right? And are my guys role models? I don't know. But I do know that they're on stage and I do know that, that people see them and I do know that kids ask for their autograph and I do know that when we go out to a bar there is a hundred different people that come out with us, right? And so that means something. Even on this tiny, tiny, tiny scale, it's so small. It's so small, the scale that I'm operating on, that we're on together, right? But it matters. It fucking matters. So yes, it has to be a human story. And yes, personality matters. American Crit. Yes. YouTube, the link will be in the, in the <laughs> bio of this video. Oh, boy. You okay. got to watch it. You got to watch all the way to the end because there's a surprise finish. Um, <laughs> there is, I forgot. Yeah. Can we expect more things like that out of you in 2020, 2021 and beyond? That was the work of that particular documentary was the work of uh, Simon, Simon uh, Attack Pictures. And I mispronounce his name all the time. It's Reichowitz, Reichowitz, I think it is. He's become uh, a colleague of ours. He had this idea to do a documentary about Gateway Cup and found our team and said, that's an interesting story and put that together. And he really has a passion for the sport and for storytelling and sat us down one afternoon, interviewed us, and then went and filmed a bunch of races. And then four months later, released this documentary. And, <laughs> and we sat down and watched it the same night. And we're like, wow, I didn't expect that to happen. That was really great. Um, there's a whole side story on that this trajectory of that documentary that's really been super educational for me and for the team. Lots of positives and some educational negatives that have really, really changed me on that. I can tell that by just by watching it, and I, I watched it a couple of times because uh, I'll be honest, like there were points in times where I had all the feels. Like there was, <laughs> there was emotion from me. And I feel like the guys who were in the video, there was emotion from them. Well, let's put it this way. I, I don't, I, I want my, I don't do, I, I mean, I do sports. I do sports to live more, not less, and to feel more and to think more and to create more and to have more than I normally would. And, and I want my athletes to live more and think and all that. And if you look at my team, they're loaded with people, but all of them, they're entrepreneurs. They have, like, look at Connor. He like flies planes and races dirt bikes and fucking fixes trucks. And he trains and lives all that way. And all of them, like you look at Kristen and she's an author and she's a chef and she's a coach and she's a bike racer and she's an entrepreneur. All, if you look at all of these different people, they all are living life to the maximum. And you know, and I want to share that with others, right? Because I think it's interesting and exciting. And, and, I, and I encourage them to live and look and, and live fearlessly and to not be afraid of feeling things and, and to have their emotions. And our team, you know, it focuses on performance in an objective way, but we treat people like human entities. I do care for my guys as human beings. I, you know, we have a policy that we need to be colleagues first and friends second. 
So I expect everybody to be a work colleague on the team. You don't have to, you don't have to be friends, but it's great if you are. And, and just like I do in my companies and my design firm and my training center and with this team, like you are a human being and I want you to be a human being and you can express emotion, but I do expect you to do that within the context of performing your, your job. That's why we're here. Right. And so, yeah, that documentary captured some raw emotions. It, it's, he, he, you know, he caught us, he's, you know, Simon sat us down and just asked us questions. And that documentary was, you know, took snippets from a full two days of interviews plus bike racing where you're tired and stressed and excited and charged and dealing with the nostalgia of a concluding year and all the stakes that go with that. And for me, that was, you know, I was retiring after that and dealing with the mortality of turning 40 and to leave bike racing behind in that way. It's, there's a lot of stuff. I'm not afraid of experiencing those emotions and also sharing those things as an artist, you know, as an athlete, you are an artist as an athlete, you are an artist. Athletic performance is a creative act in public, just like music or just like a painting or just like graphic design or just like sculpture. You know, singers and, and bike racers are the same thing. You are creating something that didn't exist before in a singular moment for the entertainment and spectacle of others. It is an act of human creativity and therefore requires emotion. It's fucking folly and a crime against humanity to shield others from that emotion and to tell yourself that isn't there. Now, do you need to execute objectively? Does it require objective thinking in emotionally charged circumstances? Yes. That is what's part of warrior culture. Warrior culture is the mastery of emotion, but not at the expense of emotion. That's a scarcity view at an abundance emotion, which is, which is an and view, which is how can I harness my emotion to objectively execute these things, right? And so, yes, I want my athletes to experience those emotions and harness them, but also to share them out willingly. I ask them, you know, we only have one behavioral policy on this team. We have one behavioral policy, which is no hate. That's it. One behavioral policy. So no misogyny, racism. Everybody feels it's, it's an inclusive, democratic, supportive environment where there is no such thing as hate. And, and as long as you subscribe to that, you can be anything else you want. I want to thank Steve Cullen for joining us on this second episode of the second season. The wealth of knowledge that he has about bike racing and the passion that he's brought to the sport is undeniable and is something that we should all be thankful for. It's because of individuals like him, those people who put their money where their mouth is and who bring their desires to the forefront that we have so many incredible opportunities and we've got such a vibrant life and such a vibrant culture and scene and I only wish the best of luck to him and to all the men and women on ButcherBox for the 2020 season as always please remember to like share and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast. Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podchaser, anywhere that you get your podcasts. And please remember to visit the website, notrainingwheelspod.com, or send us an email to notrainingwheelspod at gmail.com. And special thanks to our executive producer for this week's episode, Zach Allison. Yes, the exact same Zach Allison that Steve talked about during the course of his interview from Cliff Bar. 
Zach was instrumental in helping put together this episode, putting me in contact with Steve, and was really the driving force behind how this all came to be. Until next time, see you out on MacArthur Boulevard.